Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here once again, as always, with John Mitchell. This week, we're going to be talking about spring games and spring practices, both looking at, you know, the biggest stories we've seen so far in spring football, and then taking a quick look at what's still left on the calendar before we're officially into the offseason. And then we're going to take a little bit of a look at the NFL draft, um, a couple different areas that should be pretty interesting there. How are you doing this week, John? I'm doing well. Uh, You know, we got just a little bit more football uh, to really discuss and stuff before the long night of the college football offseason really sets in and we've got to deal with the dog days of summer where there's not a whole lot going on anymore. So kind of the last little plunge, you know, the last stand of college football until until we have to sit and wait and have to, you know, watch baseball and stuff for a while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I, I figured let's, you know, dive into it. What's, you know, I, probably the biggest story you've seen out of the spring this off season, like the biggest takeaway you've had from it all. You know, I think really this spring has been a lot, uh, the big storyline from this spring has been transfer quarterbacks. I would say is probably the biggest storyline. You've got a lot of, you know, with the grad transfer rule and really with the NCAA being more lenient than ever this off season with, instant eligibility you've had a lot of turnover in that department you know you got Jalen Hurts at Oklahoma uh, Tate Martell at Miami Justin Fields at Ohio State you know the list goes on and on there's a bunch of different players so it's been interesting to see those guys getting acclimated to the new system that they're going to be running new teammates and everything and some of them have you know gone pretty swimmingly you know everything For Jalen Hurts and Norman seems to be going very well. He performed really well in the spring game, seems to have already locked up that starting job. Not that there was really much um, thought that that wasn't going to be the case. But on the other side of things, you've got a guy like Tate Martell who struggled in Miami's spring game. He was, yeah. you know, the foregone conclusion was that he was going to be Miami's starting quarterback when he got to Coral Gables. And instead, you know, the, the guys that were already there have kind of been ahead of him, at least based on the spring game. And, you know, uh, like we've said before, I urge caution with everybody not to draw too many conclusions from one spring game because that's just the culmination of all the practices. And just because somebody had an off day doesn't mean they weren't lighting the world on fire during all the practices. So I think that's interesting. And, you know, another thing to look for in that same department is we got a couple more transfer quarterbacks that are going to be changing teams after spring practice. It'd be interesting to see if there's any more that come up, you've got Matthew Baldwin at Ohio State who recently entered the transfer portal. Yeah, looks like that was the writing on the wall was Fields, and then uh, Tommy Stevens at Penn State uh, entered the transfer portal as well. So a couple potential big names on the move, and then a couple more that could be on the horizon. Yeah, another one I think is really interesting is. Uh... Kelly Bryant at Missouri, he's looked really good so far playing in that offense, especially, you know, with his legs. I think he could be a really good um, addition to that offense and, uh, you know, sort of the successor to Locke there and, you know, bringing something different to the table. But just in terms of the way he's acclimated, I think that's an interesting one as well, especially with all the swirl around the Tigers Um, Just the fact that he stuck it out there and could really have an interesting final season of college football. 
Yeah, I agree. I think one of the interesting not to get too far off topic with the Kelly Bryant thing, uh, a lot of people thought maybe he would leave when they got the postseason ban. Yeah. But I wonder, Zach, how much bowl games mean to players anymore because, you, you know, you've got the rise of top NFL draft picks sitting out bowl games that aren't, you know, a part of a college football playoff. Like, you know, it used to be, you know, you might see some sit out nonsense bowl games, you know, the ones that aren't high profile, like the Hawaii Bowl or something like that. But you've got you've got top draft picks sitting out games like the Fiesta Bowl and the Sugar Bowl. Game, yeah, like really major bowls in the New York New Year six. So, you know, I, I don't think Kelly Bryant had any delusions of grandeur that Missouri was going to compete for a national championship this year. I don't think it meant, meant as much to him that, oh, well, I just don't get one extra game. Like, I'm still going to get 12 games with this team. I feel like this still gives me the best chance to be successful. So I don't know that bowl bands are really as impactful anymore as they once were. Maybe that's a topic for another day. No, I, 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 I'm glad that you brought it up. I think it really is an interesting thing in terms of what we have seen in the past. Um, I remember just a few years ago writing about Kiss, Christian McCaffrey sitting out the bowl, and that was, you know, even two, three years ago, we were talking about it in a much different way than we are right now. But it really is a good question of how much have we have scouts have NFL teams ever really cared about that um, because you know uh, there are certain players who and we'll talk about it some in, in the segment on the draft but you know just to quickly hit this before we move on there are players who come out from the FCS and not even necessarily FCS teams that light the playoffs on fire you know, obviously you have players from North Dakota State and Eastern Washington and whatnot that do make it to the pros, but you also see them from schools like where you're you're kind of looking there and it's it's not like they were a deep run in the playoff kind of team. That sort of stuff does come through and you don't have to play in a bowl, you don't have to light up the postseason if you're at the lower level because just what they're looking for will come rise to the top if you've got what they're looking for. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, smaller school kids get their time to shine. And I think really with the advancement of social media and stuff, I think those diamonds in the rough get noticed a lot better and a lot easier now than they used to get noticed. So, yeah, I don't really think that's too big of a thing. But, you know, circling back to – the transfer quarterbacks and stuff. It really will be interesting to see, you know, with spring ball really wrapping up. Um, we still got, you know, a few games to go, a few schools finishing up. But, you know, who else might leave? I think Tommy Stevens was the first domino to fall, but I don't think he'll be the last. Obviously, wasn't the last one because Matthew Baldwin's transferring as well. But I don't think even he's the last one. I think you'll see more and, and more. Obviously, Tommy Stevens will be eligible immediately next year. Um, as uh, having already graduated from Penn State. So he's got several teams who will be really interested in him. I actually wrote uh, a five potential landing spots for him, and I thought really potentially maybe dropping down to the group of five could be of interest to him, like a Buffalo trying to replace Tyree Jackson or maybe Fresno State trying to replace Marcus McMary. And you've got uh, Jeff Tedford there, who's a noted quarterback whisperer. And if Stevens has any aspirations of playing beyond college that might be a mutually beneficial relationship 
Totally. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that, you know, as much as we see from spring, spring still opens up things where we don't necessarily know everything that's going to be settled on the ground in the fall yet. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So there'll be there'll be some others and, you know, and, you know, good for them because, you know, they see especially a kid like Tommy Stevens, who sat behind Trace McSorley for you know, three years or whatever it was biding his time. And now he doesn't necessarily think that Penn State gives him the best opportunity for his final year of eligibility, his final year to really show, you know, next level scouts that he can play, you know, and he's taken his destiny into his own hands. And there'll be plenty of teams who have unsolved quarterback situations from the spring. Oh, we saw plenty of, plenty of teams who, you know, really uh, struggled at the position who could really use the help. So, but again, it'll be interesting how quickly someone like him or Baldwin or whoever can get acclimated in the system because they don't have the benefit of going through spring practice with their new school, like, you know, Jalen Hurts or Justin Fields did. And I thought it was interesting with Baldwin transferring to Zach because Justin Fields didn't have that great of a performance in the spring game at Ohio State. He had, you know, was splitting reps with Baldwin, but I think, it was kind of an interesting thing because Baldwin uh, talked about it and was talking about how, you know, he's not just a football player. And that's something you and I have discussed at length on this podcast, how it's not always about football when these kids want to transfer, Uh, uh, you know, quite a bit of times it's about life and what's best for them. He feels like he wants to get closer to home. He's a kid from Texas, you know, and it's a big jump to move across the country to go to a college. And, you know, sometimes you just don't fit in with that yeah. environment and it goes beyond just the gridiron. I don't think that's something that people ever really understand because every, you know, you see the mean tweets at these kids like, Oh, you're a quitter and stuff like that it has nothing to do with that. Like it, they, maybe he didn't want to sit the bench behind fields, but I mean, he was still in the competition. Ohio, Ryan day is not named Justin Fields as a starting quarterback at Ohio state. So well, again, I think it comes down to, you know, just the fit and stuff beyond football. Well, and something, you, you know, I kind of want to offer a little bit of perspective on that, because if you're going for an advanced degree and you're actually serious about wanting to do something with it after football, you know, something my professors have always told me um, as somebody who's about to go into a Ph.D. program in the fall, it is don't stay at the same school the whole time. Get different experiences. Work with different people in the field, even if you're staying in the same field. Like, and that's totally your prerogative. But the thing is, is like for instance, if you're going into one of the humanities, if you're doing history or sociology or anthropology or any of that, you want to be going to different schools and really expanding the scope of your network. And that's really going to set you up most powerfully to get a job in, you know, some, you know, going pro in something other than sports. That's really something that ought to beat the drum, celebrate that. <laughs> There's really no reason to, to not do that. And so one thing that, um, you know, comes to mind with me this spring, obviously, because, you know, Oregon held their spring game this past weekend and then going and traveling to Penn State this week, um, this past weekend as well, is kind of the juxtaposition of watching Jawan Johnson on Oregon's team. He really looks like, you know, a great 
uh, addition, a great new weapon, especially with Dylan Mitchell off to the pros. And so, like, just seeing how that transfer works out, it, it could be, a you know, we, we always tend to look at the quarterbacks first, but there are impactful transfers all across the place. I, 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 I want to see more of that. I want to see kids being able to get as many different opportunities as possible because that's what school's supposed to be about. Right. And I mean, your eligibility is a finite resource. You know, you only have so many chances to play and you're expecting these kids to sit there. Uh, and, and even if you're talking about just in football terms, and we've talked about how it goes beyond that, sometimes, <laughs> but if you're talking about just football terms, you only get, you know, five years to play four. Yeah. You know, every now and then they give a, a an extra year of eligibility for injuries or, or what have yeah. you, but that's a finite resource. You only got so many opportunities to play this game, and a lot of these kids won't play this game again after college is over. I mean, the majority of college football players don't go to the NFL. There's only, you know, 32 NFL teams who can hold, you know, what, 53 roster spots during the season and a handful of practice squad players and stuff like that. But, I mean, the majority of these kids don't get the opportunity to play after this, and they want to maximize their potential to do that. So, um, well, and with the tenuous nature of, you know, like these repeated attempts to open up spring football, you met, or, you know, spring professional football, they're continuing to, to be very short lived. You know, the last time that you really had any chance of that having any staying power was, I, I mean, the USFL, if it hadn't, you know, tried to to convert to a fall league. If it had stayed in the spring, it had real potential because it was landing the players. It was actually stealing away college players from the NFL, um, you know, straight out of college, you know, the Herschel Walkers of the world and, and the Jim Kellys and the Steve Youngs. And they were, you know, getting great players and, until a league is really able to do that and get the guys straight out who have that name recognition but haven't made their name on an NFL team to the point where going down feels like a washout, um, I don't think another league like that's going to survive. I think, you know, we talked about this on the first episode of this podcast. I think the only way to do that is if you've got a league potentially the XFL now uh, that really tries to break the mold and just says, screw it. Why don't we go offer these hotshot freshmen who have made their bones already in college football, big contracts to come play in our league. And, you know, usurp the NFL's eligibility requirements, ignore that completely. And then maybe they'd have a shot with, you know, ratings and stuff like that. The AAF, was kind of doomed from the start because they were trying to be the feeder league to the NFL without the NFL ever actually agreeing to that, you know, and giving them any type of assistance or anything like that. Just dancing with it a little. Having more football, uh, you know, for fans like us who are diehards for the sport is always a really good thing. Like I love the fact that I could watch football, uh, real football with stakes in March, you know, not spring practice where it's, you know, glorified scrimmages and all that all the time. Oh, yeah. Well, and I remember when I was a, I can't remember exactly how old I was when it came out, but the World League that became NFL Europe, um, you know, like I, I was 9, 10, maybe 11 years old when that first launched and it's that same sort of thing it you know it's it it can be really energizing but you have to do it the right way 
and nobody's really, I, you know, I think the model the USFL had in terms of challenging the NFL directly on, like, draft picks, like, we're not going to put our games opposite you, we're going to play in a different season, but we're going to go get the same players that you're trying to get right now. Um, and I think what you'd mentioned is really even one-upping that model. And, you know, we're going to steal them before you're, you even allow your teams to look at these guys as more right. than an abstraction and a, a, a fantasy down the road. Like, we're yeah, going to go get the them right now. <laughs> right. And I made the point before. Imagine the ratings for the AAF or the XFL if they could kick off their um, new league with a like massive matchup, like Tua Tagovailoa versus Trevor Lawrence on you know prime time on Sunday, Saturday, whenever you're going to play the games, because they offered them money and they decided to leave college to take the take the paycheck. Like imagine the ratings that would draw, imagine the revenue that would bring in. I think that's the only way at this point that a league like that can survive. I think if the XFL strikes out on trying to do that then I think they're just as doomed as they were the first time around and probably won't make it much longer. Here's an interesting question, though. What that really brings up for me is, if you really start getting people out to those games, what does that do for something like spring football games? I mean, for instance, you know, like we see schools having 60, sometimes 70, 80,000 people come out to their stadiums for spring games. Um if a league like this in the pros really does take off, does that sort of dissipate some of that revenue for college teams? You know, and I know it's not like a huge part of their revenue source and it's not like, it, it, it's not real, real, real play. As much as they can try to make it no matter what kind of format you use and that's, you know, I think another part of it is every team is free to use whatever scrimmage format they want. And sometimes it, it can produce some compelling storylines. And sometimes you get to see some guys do a few cool things. And there's only so much that's really football to it. It's going through drills. And, right. you, you know, it's really making, getting the chance to try out these plays in front of a live crowd situation but at the same time, the people who are coming to spring games, you're not having any hecklers. You're not having any of the people who who want you to be doing poorly. Everybody wants to see everybody successful on the field. So even then, you don't get the live ball situation. But I think if you have a spring, you know, and I think we kind of drifted a bit off tangent here, but I think it also does have to do with spring football because if, you know, some of these pro leagues that want to go – challenge the NFL if if an XFL really does get off the ground finally and does it more effectively this time it's going to be interesting to see what that will do to spring football attendance to you know viewing numbers on television um, how much teams are able to get in TV contracts and in gate receipts and, you know, what that does to communities as well who count on, you know, 50,000, 60,000 people flocking in who aren't necessarily always there. And then, you know, 10,000, 20,000 more diehards from inside the town going into the stadium as well. But getting that out of town revenue is huge for a community as also, especially, you know, a lot of these college towns where that's the big game in town. Sure. 
Yeah, I think uh, you were bringing up an interesting point there, too, with kind of, you know, everybody does spring differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everybody, and, you know, really a lot of, for a lot of schools, it's the showcase is the spring game and really everything was already mostly figured out prior to the spring game. So you've got some teams experimenting. Some teams just go out there and have fun. I mean, Rutgers hosted a spring game and uh, both of their teams topped a hundred points in the game. Like that wasn't serious football. They had yeah. uh, a really cool moment in their spring game too. They had, I believe at like a cancer survivor or something like that, take a snap out of the backfield and get to run a touchdown that counted in the spring game. So you've got teams who do stuff like that yeah. and just out there having fun, enjoying it. And you've got some super serious situations. If you look at, you know, Alabama, for instance, they always play their spring games super tight and close to the vest and, you know, really evaluating it. And it works one way or another. I, I don't want to use those two as the example because Rutgers, if you're using those two as the example, then obviously everybody should be being serious because Alabama wins and Rutgers most yeah. certainly does not. But I don't think that really has much to do with it. I think spring is a fun time. It gives us a glimpse of what we might see, but mostly it's used for the coaches to kind of evaluate guys for, for players to kind of see if they can make some moves up the depth chart. And then if not, maybe explore other options for themselves and and for fans. It's, I don't, I don't think there's too much you can glean from it at this point because a lot can change between now here in April and, you know, when things really kick back into gear, late summer, early August, stuff like that. Well, and I, yeah, I mean, exactly. For fans, it's a chance to get to go into the stadium. It's a chance to get to congregate with the folks you love in the stands. And it's a chance to get to see the good guys out on the field in, in the colors you love. Um, and there's no chance of a loss. No, exactly. Yeah. N- you know, even even they're having to worry about that. Yeah, exactly. Even when mighty Oregon beat the fighting ducks, like, oh, okay, that, sure. <laughs> Another cool thing there, I too, with spring games is sometimes it's every, it's some fans' only opportunity to get to go to a game. Like you see it, you know, a lot of, a lot of places I know don't actually charge at the gate for spring games. Yeah. Like, uh, fans in for free obviously sell concessions and make money that way. But, I mean, that can be a big deal. Like, that brings people in who might not normally get to go watch a real live game because, you know, the cost can be exorbitant, especially if you've got kids and stuff yeah. like that you're tracking in. Even if you're paying 40 50 bucks a pop, if you're a family of five, you're really starting to it, take it, it up there, especially if you're counting having to pay four or five bucks for a water at the concession stand. So the spring game really can also really offer the opportunity for some fans to actually get to see their team in person Maybe the only time they get to do that. Yeah, and to experience the stadium from the inside. Like, I think about people who, you know, travel hundreds of miles to go sit outside a stadium and don't actually have tickets to go in, but they're there just for the tailgating and the atmosphere and just the collective energy that comes from it. And getting the, you know, like, you see the stadium from you know, television, and you can get a feel for some of the elements, but until you're actually walking through the different areas of it and walking down the back corridors to get to your seats and really getting to experience that whole feel of it, you don't necessarily know every you know, everything that's possible with that. And just being able to experience the architecture in that very, you know, tactile way is huge. It makes a big difference for 
even if the only time you're actually watching the games that count are on the TV, you know, hooked up to your RV as you're grilling, you know, 180 feet away from the, the gate of the stadium. One of my favorite experiences actually happened from just sitting outside the stadium and watching a game on TV that was literally taking place a few hundred feet from where I was. Like yeah. I watched the 2014 Alabama-Florida game. Florida was in town playing in Tuscaloosa, and I went, and a buddy of mine were kind of scouting out tickets, but everybody was trying to sell it because it was Florida, you know, big yeah. SEC game. Oh, of course. Everybody was selling tickets for over 100 bucks a pop, and we just weren't going to pay that. So we tailgated. We consumed plenty of adult beverages and had just a fantastic time sitting outside the stadium, listening to the roar of the crowd from the stadium and getting to see it on TV. It's kind of always tough, though, because if you're doing that, it's always a 10-second delay for TV. So you'll hear a roar and be like, oh, man, something happened, and then you'll see the big play or something like that. So it's pretty pretty unique experience in that regard. It has nothing to do with spring football, but just an interesting aside, I guess. Yeah, but it's kind of just like a rumble over the wall that comes toward you, and then you get the visual of it. And it is really fun like that in terms of, it's a very different way of experiencing the emotion of a game. And so, yeah, I, I totally agree with you, that fact that you know, many teams spring games, as you said, are free or at the very least are a very reduced price or sometimes it's like bring a donation and then you get in free. You know, some teams will do that sort of thing. And it's it, it really democratizes the ability for fans to to get that experience, even if it is only seeing the team you you do like in their colors. But usually it just means you get to see two sets of uniforms that you like. So that's cool. Right. You know, at least as a Ducks fan, it's like, which two are they going to pick this year? So. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I, there's there's definitely value to spring. And I think the value may be even more for fans, like getting the opportunity to. I think that's probably my favorite thing about spring is the fans who don't normally get to go to the games uh, because it can be so unobtainable. And I, I think of that because of what we talked about a few weeks ago and the formative experiences as a yeah. fan, like finally getting to go to a yeah. real live Alabama game. Uh, that really wasn't something that was ever even feasible for my parents when I was growing up. It just, my dad happened to get tickets from work somehow and we got to go. But before that, it was never even something that I even really thought like I wanted to go, but financially it just wasn't really all that feasible. Uh, plus it's a two hour drive from where my parents live to Tuscaloosa. So it just never really made sense. Of so course. the spring game really can't offer that. And I remember I've gone to a couple of spring games in Alabama and I don't, the first one I went to was a lot of fun, but you know, after that it kind of gets bogged down. It's like, Oh, we're watching the most scripted, formulaic plays ever we're gonna you know not try to reveal anything and tip our hands to these especially at places like alabama whose spring games are televised live on espn yeah. or espn2 they're not going to tip their hand too much from onlooking coaches and scouts who could be trying to get any kind of edge heading into the season but i remember the first time i got to go and there was eighty thousand fans and bryant denny sitting around me and it was pretty awesome and it's just that so, atmosphere of that more than anything right. like actually getting to feel what a crowd feels like from the middle of the crowd is 
It, it does change the experience once you hear the roar on the TV or you're sitting outside and you hear the roar come over the wall before you see it on TV. And it's general admission, so you can sit in seats that would never even exactly be that possible too. for a lot of people. Even if people who get to go to games, they might be sitting in the nosebleeds and stuff like that, having trouble actually ascertaining what's happening on the field. And you can actually get onto the field almost in yeah. some of these kind of games. So totally. there's there's a lot of value to that, I think. And that's something that probably doesn't get discussed as much when you're trying to break down. But I think that's one of my favorite parts about spring. Because like I said, I, I, I don't want to jump the shark on too many uh, highbrow observations from spring practice because you see it all the time. And a lot of these teams aren't complete either, Zach. Like you've got recruiting classes. Not everyone enrolls early. So you've yeah. got – some potential contributors coming in from recruiting classes. You've got several transfers that are still going to take place, and teams are going. To, several teams are going to look a lot different come fall than they look right now here in the spring. Certainly. Um, so, one last question before we go to break: um, Has spring changed any of your perceptions on what the pecking order is going to look like heading into next season? You know, I don't think so. Um, I think. Obviously, Alabama, Clemson are, you know, the cream of the crop still. I haven't seen yeah. anything from either team. I know a lot of people were talking about both Trevor Lawrence and Tua Tungvaluwa not looking uh, as crisp as they would have thought during their prospective spring games. But again, you're talking about offenses that are running very um, run-of-the-mill, simple plays. Oh, yeah. not really pulling anything out. And you're going against a defense that sees you every day in practice and knows all your tendencies and stuff like that. Exactly. Uh, as it, well as anyone. Yeah. Especially defenses like Clemson and Alabama, who are both elite defenses. So I think those are still far and away your top two teams. I think after that, it's a little bit wide open. I think Oklahoma might be, in my opinion, probably the team sitting there uh, uh, waiting to kind of jump in. And, you know, that would be, what, the third straight year Alabama, Clemson, Oklahoma have made the playoff if, if those three teams make it again. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I think it's really the fourth spot, I think, is really wide open. You know, there's no number four team who really jumps out to me. I think a lot of people soured on Notre Dame after the Cotton Bowl. And I don't know how fair that is considering what Clemson also did to Alabama in the national championship game. But See, that was one uh, thing I did want to mention as well is Notre Dame and Ian Book especially looked good in their spring, you know, scrimmage. He did look like he was, you know, continuing to progress as a quarterback. And Notre Dame's defense looked like, you know, the quality that Notre Dame's defense can be. And so I think they're definitely going to be in the mix again. Um, whether or not, and, and it's going to be one of those things where it's always going to stir a bit of controversy if they do get in, but would it shock me if we saw it all line up that way? No. No, no there there really has been a remarkable lack of parity in college football the last few years. Like, it's really been, you know, obviously we've seen Alabama and Clemson play in the playoff now, what, four consecutive seasons? Yeah. Uh, three national title games in the Sugar Bowl uh, the year before, so... I, maybe this is the year that changes. I it's I think ESPN uh, released their projections this week, and Clemson had something like an 88% chance, according to the Football Power Index, to make the playoff just because there's really no one in the ACC that looks like they can challenge them. And then Alabama was at 71% to make the playoff. So it would be tough to bet against either of those teams to be there again at the end. 
Totally. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. It, it, And I think that's why, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to leave this for after the break, and then I'm going to rant about this some more before we get into the final games that are coming up. So everybody stay tuned. We will be right back. Welcome back, everybody. We're back from the break, and uh, yeah, I'm going to go on into ranting. Uh, before we get into the rest of the spring football schedule. Right before the break, we were talking a bit about, you know, spring that we've seen so far and um, whether or not it's really changed any perceptions on what the pecking order looks like heading into next season. And, you know, I think the fact that it really doesn't change much and I think the fact that we're still looking at the usual suspects once again really speaks to, you know, teams really figuring out what they have to do to get into that field more than it necessarily does that they're definitively the best teams. And I think you know where I'm going with this. And it's the simple fact that expanding it would make more chaos and and more chaos, honestly, when you get into a situation like this parody makes more fun. Just look at the first year of the BC or the college football playoff after, you know, four, 16 years of the BCS. Nobody thought that it was going to be Ohio State winning it all there. And, you know, like the four seed coming in and taking it all, and the fact that there was even controversy about should the is the four seed really the deserving four seed? And then they come in with a third stringer and clean it up. And it, it, it really does speak to the fact that there are more than four teams that have real potential to go to make a run. And I think there are more than four teams in any given year who are at least justifiably deserving of a chance at it, whether it's because they've won one of the Power 5 championships. You know, I mean, I think the fact that we see a lot of these Power 5 champions get sort of snubbed for getting in, you're always going to have at least one get snubbed. If Notre Dame gets in, you have two get snubbed automatically. And, it, you know, if it's a year where, for instance, the SEC puts two teams in, it, three are going to get snubbed. Like, it could be, you know, like, you could really see only two Power Five conferences represented in any given year. You know, I think a big argument that comes from people who say don't expand it is you're going to devalue the regular season. But at the same time, if we're basically just saying winning a Power Five championship means essentially nothing, are we not devaluing the regular season by not expanding the playoff? Yeah, I... I'm kind of on the fence about it, I guess. I think what ends up, what's going to end up happening is you're going to have a situation, like you said, or say next year we get Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, and like LSU or yeah. something like that. So only the SEC and ACC are represented among the Power Five. Stuff like that is what leads to the changes. That's what, you know, Alabama, LSU played for the national title in 2011. That's what led to the college football playoff that we're now in. So it takes something like that. It takes other leagues sitting on the outside looking in and seeing that. And, you know, you made a good point about Ohio State. And then Alabama won the national championship as a four seed. So we've had that happen twice already um, during the playoff era where a four seed has won it. And I believe we're still over on one seeds ever winning the yeah. playoff, if I'm not mistaken. The one 
has never actually come out on top and won the playoff, which is kind of mind-boggling, especially based on what we talked about, about there hasn't been all that much parity in recent years that, you know, Alabama and Clemson have split the last four national championships, but neither won it as the number one overall seed. You know, Alabama was the one last year and lost. Year before that, Clemson was the one and Alabama knocked them off. So well, I think that's kind of fascinating. I think my thinking on the playoff and a way to potentially – not devalue the regular season, as some people like to call it. What if you expanded it to six, and then you have, you know, sort of the NFL rules, and the top two seeds get a bye week in the first round? So that doesn't devalue the regular season because there's incentive to, you know, be those top two seeds because you got one less game to play to make the national championship. So I, I think I mean I know you're in favor of going even further than that, and I think eventually we're going to see sixty-four. Oh, wait, yeah, wait, what? You know, it wouldn't surprise me if we ended up, you know, 30 years from now talking about that. But I think, to me, I think maybe the next logical step is a six team instead of an eight, just because you get the top two seeds with bye weeks. And I think that would be kind of a fascinating race in the regular season as these teams, you know, there's incentive to still make sure you're in and out every week trying to go undefeated because if you get a bye, I mean, that could be the difference and you playing and winning a national title because you've got to win two games instead of three. No, and I see the value of that. I mean, it's definitely come up in the FCS playoffs, for instance, as they've expanded over the years. You know, there has been going to 12 and going to 24 in their case where, you know, you have had seeded teams that do get that, get off that first round. And yeah, there's certainly some value to it. And I think, if we, I think we will eventually expand, obviously, and I think six might be where it goes first, and I think we'll expand beyond that. And I think, you know, perhaps as much as people talk about going to 16 or whatever, I could really see 12 becoming that sweet spot eventually where the top four seeds and probably the top four power five or any year where Notre Dame does well, they're in there as well. But... um you know, that allows for really good Power 5 conferences to have two or possibly even three teams in. It allows for you to hit every conference champion from the major conferences. It allows you to have that automatic bid into the party for at least one smaller conference team. Um, because if you are expanding, you're going to have to expand those opportunities as well. Uh, yeah. yeah, I worry with the automatic bid kind of stuff, though, and I, you know, not to get too far out there, but like we would have been one step away last year from Pitt being in the college football playoff if they would have somehow upset Clemson. And that just didn't really sit with me. Now, then obviously they were nowhere close to actually getting there because Clemson ran them off the field, as everyone expected. Certainly, to but, do. but no, and I, I remember a five-loss Wisconsin team winning the Big Ten championship in shocking fashion. It, it definitely is possible, you know, back when they played Nebraska, and it was totally not supposed to happen, but both Ohio State and Penn State were on sanctions and neither one of them, you know, both that was when we still had legends and leaders. And so Wisconsin was in that division with those two teams and they were obviously the better teams, but Wisconsin got the, the nod because they were quote unquote clean. Who knows what any program sure. actually is, but they got sure. the nod and they ran the, the Huskers off the field in Indianapolis 
it was like 70 to 14 or something like that. But I remember them scoring a ridiculous amount of points, but that was, you know, sort of a surprise situation. And I mean, it was the situation that allowed Northern Illinois to go to the orange bowl, essentially, because you had conference champions that were finishing below them in the BCS standings. Right. Yeah. I, you know, that's probably a a topic that we can really dive into further when we're searching, grasping at straws during the summer for stuff. Yeah. I'm sure we'll be ranting about this more and this is, yeah, I've kind of taken us on a diversion, everybody here. Um, But yeah, that's kind of what this podcast is all about. So, you know, hold on for the ride. But since we did promise that we were going to get into some of these spring games as well that are still left to come, um, you know, I'm looking at the schedule a little bit of what's left. And I think in terms of what's really interesting to me, um, obviously Wyoming still has to play theirs. That's always a fun one for me. But like even... Looking lower than that, like North Dakota State, like who's going to step up for Easton Stick at quarterback? Because you always, you know, we've seen them have a progression of great quarterbacks. So just watching that game to see who takes the reins. And, um, you know, you've obviously got a few big power, not big power five ones, but a few, especially ACC and, and Big Ten schools or. Georgia Tech, Maryland, Virginia. Um, Virginia could be an interesting one. I, you know, Georgia Tech, um, especially with, uh, you know, a new staff in place will be a fun one to see how that goes about. Especially transitioning from the triple option to whatever kind of placeholder offense that Jeff Collins decides to, you know, put forth in, in Atlanta this year because they've got you know, players to run the triple option. Yeah. So what kind of hybrid offense can he put together to kind of maximize the talent he has there totally. and potentially still move back towards what, you know, he wants to do. And then, you know, how can they be competitive? Because with, with having an option based team like that, I think it's going to take, it's not a overnight. Oh no, it's going to take a couple of, that, yeah. Right. So I think getting the first glimpse at what Georgia tech could be next year is maybe the most intriguing spring game still left on the schedule. Totally. And then, um, Another one for me, um, following especially Pac-12 football, Washington still has to play. So seeing how, you know, everything goes on, life after Browning, life after Gaskin. You know, the past couple years we've seen the defense lose a lot of parts and pieces each year and just continue to be really good. Is that going to continue to be the case this year for the Huskies as they, you know, try to try to stay on top of a Pac-12 North that's going to be really good this year, especially with what we saw from Oregon last week in their spring game and just all the especially new players that they have who look like really solid contributors right out the gate. And the first extended look at Washington of of Jacob Eason, quarterback too, because, you know, we talked about, you know, Jake Browning struggles the last couple of years um, at Washington with the Huskies. And maybe if Eason can be that five-star kid that he was – and, you know, he lost the job at Georgia through no real fault of his own. Yeah. He got injured. So if he can be an upgrade at the position, then Washington can take the step from not only being a Pac-12 contender to being a serious threat at making the college football playoff, which isn't something we've seen the last couple of years out of the Pac-12. So that could be really interesting. Plus, what you said, Oregon's 
fighting uh, to kind of to get there as well. They've got a lot of talent. And that division we talked about last week or week before, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Pac-12 North, that could be maybe the most intriguing divisional race in all of college football next year with Washington, Oregon, Stanford, Washington State. You know, yeah. four legitimate teams. If any of those teams won the Pac-12 North, neither of us would be shocked. I don't think anybody around the country would be shocked at that. No, not at all. Um, so, yeah, I think those are probably the most interesting games of all. Um, that Washington one is definitely one I've had circled um, just as probably the most interesting one for me, obviously, is as a fan of Pac-12 football. Um, but then also, um, you know, staying in Pac-12, you've also got Colorado, it, especially with how wide open the Pac-12 South is going to be this year. Mel Tucker's um, first spring yes, with the Buffaloes. Exactly. So seeing, you know, we know he can recruit, but seeing kind of how he can handle a whole program. And Colorado was what five and zero last year, or five and one last year, yeah. before losing the remainder of their games. They looked like the favorite in the Pac-12 South for the first, uh, you know, month and a half or so of the season, yeah. and the bottom just fell out down the stretch, and that obviously led to the to the coaching change. So, and you know, we talked about that division being wide open. UCLA. You know, they've already had their spring game, but I think it finished three to zero. Yeah. The Chip Kelly spring game like that's like yeah. either the defense in Westwood is really good or man, that offense is going to struggle again. That would really concern me if I was a UCLA fan, obviously, with already the recruiting struggles Chip Kelly's had. But I mean, he's always been kind of an offensive mastermind, right? Even with lower talents, always been able to scrape out points. But a three to zero spring game like I don't know. You know, I'm not going to claim that to know the back story of the entire spring game. I didn't watch it, but I did see the score. And that, yeah. that to me, is a little bit concerning for UCLA. They could really be in for another long season. Well, having definitely, you know, I didn't get to catch the whole thing either, but having seen some of the highlights and everything, it will be a good defense this year. I think if, you you know, UCLA is has the chance to be a spoiler, has a chance to be a real dark horse, because of that defense, you know, Dorian Thompson Robinson looked okay in the spring, but you know, he's being pushed this spring. I I could really see, um, you know, any number of things happening with that offense between now and the fall, but the defense is pretty locked in and that's, it's a rarity for PAC 12 teams, you know, to just be blunt about it, to have, I, I could see them being really a top 30 defense if, if, if all the pieces stay right for them. What a difficult college football season it's going to be for you, by the way. For the first time, you're going to experience Pac-12 after dark. Oh, yeah. It will. You're going to have to deal with it from the East Coast, trying to stay up and watch Oregon games at midnight or after. Oh, man. In Eastern time. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think my eyes are starting to blur just thinking about it. So, um, yeah, just for all of you out there, um, yeah, I'll be doing this podcast soon enough from across the country at Penn State where I'll be studying for a PhD in the history and philosophy of sport. A really great program there. So that's, that, that's what John is ribbing me about because I've – always been a, a, a West Coast kind of guy or at least a mountain time zone guy for as long as I've loved college football. And so it's going to it, it's going to take something. It's going to be a bit of a change, but um, it just means there's 
that watching game day in the morning is my excuse to have a beer before noon rather than <laughs> than just actually getting to turn on the game itself. So it'll be a change of pace. But, you know, I was also hearing while I was out in Happy Valley this past weekend that, um, you know, a game weekend brings up 300,000 people to town. And I was, you know, I was kind of thinking about it and I was like, well, the stadium holds 107,000. They're like, yeah, they're the exact people we were talking about in the last segment who want to just be sitting outside and hearing the roar of the crowd and getting that experience vicariously, you know, just getting to feel the rumble come through their body. So it's a religious experience. Yeah, legitimately it is like it's very difficult to describe unless you've been there and seen it. Not I've never been to Penn State, but I've been, you know, to Alabama games and the same thing. Exactly. Twice as many people that are in Tuscaloosa or in any given college city for a game. They're actually going to be there. You've got thousands of people sitting outside or going to various bars and stuff near the stadium. And I mean, it's. It's unlike anything, and that's really one of the things that just makes us really love the sport too. Like you've, if you've never experienced a college football game in person, I can't recommend it enough. Like it's one thing to see it on TV, but being in that atmosphere is just, it's just something else entirely. It, it really is. So yeah, I think we've gone over the games that really are most interesting for us here. Um, I think we're going to take another quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk a bit about the draft. So uh, stay tuned, everybody. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, the NFL draft is really on the horizon. So uh, Zach and I kind of take a different angle when talking about the NFL draft because we are first and foremost college football fans, and we always look at it from more of a college football perspective. So one of the fun things I personally like to look at, Zach and I have talked about this topic before, is kind of the guys who were undervalued in NFL draft circles who us college football fans have watched for the last couple of years and were pounding the table, yelling, like, just just draft this guy. Like, yeah. I'm promising you, just draft this guy, thank me later. I like to affectionately call this the Russell Wilson All-Stars Yes, uh, every year. Because, uh, a few, you know, when Russell Wilson came out, he was a third-round pick. I, I mean, I was screaming at my TV for every pick, like, take take Russell Wilson. Yeah. Like, it's not that complicated. I don't care that he's five foot 11 or six foot or whatever. The kid can frickin' play football, yep. you know? So I've always dubbed it the Russell Wilson All-Stars. I like to kind of take a look every year at some of the guys who, you know, aren't really on the radar for first round. And sometimes they are first round picks. Like, I remember two years ago, one of my big things coming into the draft was I was screaming for people to take Deshaun Watson first. Like, that's the number one quarterback. Grab Deshaun Watson and just shut up. Like, don't take Mitchell Trubisky from North Carolina over Deshaun Watson. That's a franchise-altering mistake. Don't overthink this. (laughs) Yes, it's not complicated. Like, not to rip on Wyoming and and cut too close to home, Zach, but like Josh Allen last year, I was screaming in the opposite direction. Like, don't... Don't take this kid. Like, Don't reach too you know. high. Don't reach too high. Right. Um, so, you know, you got your Russell Wilson All-Stars and you got your other side of the fence. Maybe we can call it the Christian Ponder All-Stars. Yeah. The guys who go 
top 10 who really shouldn't go top 10. Maybe that's a topic we can kind of approach later on. But the Russell Wilson All-Stars okay. are the players who really, you know, should go higher than they're going to go. I totally so, get that, yeah. Yeah, I, that that's one of my favorite things about the draft is being able to, to yell. And, you know, not all these are going to pan out because it's a, you know, kind of shot in the dark a lot of times on these. But a lot of these guys are really quality football players who we've seen. Oh, of um, course. Well, and if you're going to get drafted in here, you're, you've obviously got some kind of quality. And, you know, as much as we can, you know, pick over where we would specifically put somebody, um, in the end, if you're in one of these seven rounds, you're among the most elite 250 or so players in the country that year, you know, coming out draft eligible. I, I can't remember exactly, and I think it, it comes down to compensatory picks and stuff, exactly how many come out in a given year, but isn't it like 252 usually or something like that? It's 254 this year. It also varies on which NFL teams cheated variously and had to forfeit a pick or two. Okay. <laughs> I, I knew it was somewhere around that range, but yeah, I mean, give or take 250. Yeah, you're in elite company if you get selected here. Um, Absolutely. So who's your first Russell Wilson all-star, John? I The first guy that really came to my mind was Hunter Renfro mm. at Clemson, the Clemson wide receiver, just because, you know, he's not maybe the most athletically gifted player, but he's as solid as it gets. Like, I can't imagine a, a guy I'd rather have as, like, my number four receiver on an NFL team. Just the guy, if you need a first down, how many players would you rather throw to than Renfro? He's got maybe the most surest hands I've ever seen. I mean, I think some NFL teams might be turned off by the fact that he was at Clemson for 23 years and yeah. he's like 45 years old at this point. But I think he's still got a few years left yeah. in him. Yeah. I think he yeah. could still be a, a quality NFL receiver. I mean, he went to the Senior Bowl in Mobile and really played well there and made some contested catches. I think he's the type of player – who's going to end up having a five to 10 year NFL career, maybe never be a pro bowl or all pro type player, but kind of the guy who, you know, you can lean on when you've got to have, you know, a specific yardage amount that you've got oh, yeah. to get, you can throw to because he's just a perfect possession receiver. He's not going to take the top off a of defense. No. Going deep. He doesn't run a four, three, but I don't know if I've ever seen the kid drop a freaking football. Yeah. I can tell you that much. And like he, he, run, he runs Chris Browts. He he's, He's a smart guy. Um, you know, that much college will certainly do it to you. Um, at least you hope it will. And he, uh, but yeah, he's, he's, he's definitely one I think is a great pick there. Um, one I've seen, or one player I've seen, and it's always tough with running backs because, you know, any given year, somebody's going to get hot, somebody's going to get cold on a running back. But one that's kind of blown my mind, and I've seen really low on a lot of like multi round draft projections Miles Gaskin. I don't know. I know you recently did a seven-round mock-up, and I, I can't remember exactly where you had Gaskin at. But... I can't remember off the top of my head, but a day three, fourth, fifth round, exactly like that, like definitely lower than you would think from his college production. And, and I think it's ridiculous. I mean, he's the first Pac-12 player in history, in, you know, Pac-12 and all of its predecessors, to go 1,000 yards four straight years. 
you think of all the great running backs that have come out of that conference, and he's the first one to do it all four years of his playing eligibility, that says something to me. That says you obviously got something. And as much as we denigrate Pac-12 offenses, he's done that, you know, in seasons where Washington has gone to the the college football playoff. And he's done it in seasons where they've won the Pac-12 championship several times. And he's been an instrumental part of that. Just like Rimfro, you've got the tape of him doing incredible things for a, a top shelf team. And if you have that tape, I, I think they get too bogged down in the measurables sometime. And we get the recency bias of seeing, you know, the combine and just athletic freaks who just bog people's eyes out and we forget that look at what they do in a game and I think that really gets to the heart of you know Russell Wilson to to bring it back to the name of this little segment here that was exactly what happened with him is you're looking at the measurables and you're ignoring what you actually saw him do in real time the biggest NFL draft busts in history were all physical freaks like the guys who were the marinovich yeah yeah the guys who you know they're six five they run a four two and they absolutely bust because they're not students of the game they don't have the work ethic that some of these kids have i think the thing that hurts gaskin uh though is that you know he did play four years of college he's got a lot of tread on his tires so teams look at that like he might not have you know that long but I, I mean, would it? It wouldn't surprise me at all if Gaskins, you know, a fifth or sixth round pick or whatever comes in and ends up starting for an NFL team next yeah. year. Maybe he doesn't have the longest career. A lot of running backs don't have that long of a career. But if you can get three, four, five years of really good production from a guy you draft in the fifth round, that's a steal. Well, exactly. And, you know, I think about players who, running backs especially, whose careers weren't long, but they burned really bright. Like, the one that really comes to mind immediately for me is Terrell Davis. And the way he, you know, like, he only played, I think, six years, seven years in the NFL. I don't remember exactly, but, I mean, that was... At, at the very least, the longest he was starting, you know, by the early 2000s, he wasn't starting anymore, but he was the catalyst. He's the whole reason Denver beat Green Bay back when I was following the NFL a lot more, and that broke me. Growing, so you're not, you're not salty about that at all? No, growing up in Broncos country, watching Green Bay lose their chance at a second straight Super Bowl, and then watching Denver go on to win two straight Super Bowls instead, I'm a little salty about that. And, (laughs) you know, for as good as Elway was, he was at the end of his career, and it was Terrell Davis that did that. Absolutely. And he's he's still a Broncos legend, you know, whenever I do go back to that part of the country, you still hear people talking about him. Um, and justifiably so. And it, that also speaks to the fact that you don't have to have a 20-year NFL career to make your mark on the game. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. I mean, look at, like, Calvin Johnson, for instance. He retired when he was 29 years old, yeah. and I mean... He's one of the best receivers I've ever seen play the game. Of like, course. And that's the thing with the NFL. Like, you don't necessarily – you're not necessarily drafting guys with the idea they're going to be there for 10, 15 years. Like, you're drafting guys on a short-term plan. And a guy like Miles Gaston, I think, could really make a big impact. Certainly. 
Um, so who else sticks out to you in this regard? I had a couple more receivers before I moved on. I thought of uh, Greg Dortch, wide oh, receiver yeah. out of Wake Forest, who was just lightning in a bottle for them. And I also thought um, Andy Isabella mm. uh, from Massachusetts. I thought uh, both of those guys, uh, Isabella's projected as a day two pick probably going to go in the maybe even day three like you're talking probably third to fourth round but I think he could be easily a second round guy and I think the way he runs routes I mean he led the NCAA last year in receiving yards and it wasn't just people like to talk about the lower competition he you know had at UMass playing against lower division teams he also dropped 250 yards on Georgia yep that happened that, in that Athens, did happen between the Hedgens 250 yards on Georgia Despite the fact that no one listening to this podcast right now can name who UMass's quarterback was last year. No one. Yeah. So he did that despite the fact he didn't have upper echelon quarterback play. So this kid, I think, is going to be, like, really, really good. Like, I would love to see him go to an offense like the Patriots or the Chiefs or somebody that's really yeah. going to maximize his ability. And then Greg Dorch is a guy who I've seen in some mocks not even getting drafted, which just boggles wow. my mind. Like, I've literally seen him going undrafted. And every year you've got some undrafted free agents who really show out, uh, not to be too biased on the Alabama end of the spectrum, but both both Cam Sims and Robert Foster as receivers last year went undrafted and really made their mark with the Redskins and Bills, uh, respectively. Sims got injured uh, and missed most of the season, but he was on the roster as an undrafted free agent. Robert Foster was the Bills' number two receiver last year. So there's always that kind of guy. Greg Dorch has game-changing speed. I think as a late-round flyer, I think he could be maybe the, even the steal of the draft. Totally. And I know you got a, a couple of really good receivers there. There was one other running back who was sticking out in my mind, and he's been projected a little bit higher, probably like late day two, early day three. But Daryl Henderson from Memphis, I, you know, I, I, I'm somebody who, who covers the group of five, and so I watched a lot of AAC games last year, and he is an electric runner. He is, he is a, a spark plug for an offense. Um, and I think he's really going to be that type of player who could really light up a team that needs that just instant contribution on, on in the backfield. Absolutely. I think, I think he's one of the more pro ready running backs in my opinion. I think he's got kind of the, the ability to make the, the jump cuts and really, break free and find he's got really good vision I, I mean he was outstanding at Memphis I, I really like that pick as well another running back Zach that I thought of kind of a versatile kind of player who in my mock uh just because I love the fit I projected him to go to New England was Alex Barnes out of Kansas oh State. yeah he's projected as a you know seventh round slash undrafted free agent kind of pick he showed out at the combine like it wouldn't surprise mm-hmm. me if a team valued him and picked him in the fifth or sixth round just because, I mean, he tested really well at the Combine. He could be a running back slash kind of H-back kind of player. Like totally. His ability as a receiver. I, I really like him as a player. He's one of my really big sleepers of the draft. And him going to New England is like maybe the most perfect fit from prospect oh, to yeah. actual NFL team, I think. So he was one of the guys that really stood out to me as well. 
just because I don't think anybody's really talking about him. But he ran really well at the combine. He put up like 34 reps on the bench press. Oh at wow! The combine. Yeah, I didn't Had really pay attention to the vertical leap. So I mean, Alex Barnes should be drafted. And I mean, he had a really good career at Kansas State yeah. as well, uh, in kind of a different kind of of offense, kind of offense that really valued a type of player like that. So I'm surprised that he hasn't gotten more hype than he's gotten. I, I think that's a really good one to to note as well. Um, let's switch gears again a, a bit to the other side of the coin that you were talking about. Um, who are, who are some of the guys you're looking at who are probably going to get picked way earlier than they? ought to be or you know like you think a team's gonna reach for right well you when you're looking at those kind of players you're looking at guys who are kind of the athletic freaks right the guys who everyone's thinking oh this is a can't miss prospect he's got all the measurables to be you know super successful and all that and you know measurables are all well and good but if you're looking at players also, turn on the tape, see how they actually perform. Like, there's plenty of guys who test ridiculously well athletically and then end up having nothing of a pro career. I think the guy who's gotten the biggest bump, and I've actually been relatively high on him even in uh, the pre-draft process, is DK Metcalf at all this. Like, I don't think he has the production that matches the fact that he's 230 pounds and ran a 4-3-40, which is absolutely absurd yeah but if you actually broke down like his spider chart and looked at some of his other stuff everything else was really average like he jumped really well he ran fast he's got great size but his change of direction like if he's running straight line he's going to run right by, by you but if he's got to change direction like his three-cone yeah. shuffle and stuff like that ranked in like the 20th percentile of nfl draft prospects so that's you know not great. So he's one of the guys that comes to mind. And also Rashawn Gary mm-hmm. at Michigan, uh, from Michigan. He, uh, one of the biggest freaks at the combine, but I think Rashawn Gary had nine and a half sacks in 34 games at Michigan as an edge rusher. So what's the, you know, ceiling for a guy like that? Like, I don't know. You draft him. He's probably going to go in the top 10 to 15 picks. And you're talking about a guy who's not really a difference maker as a pass rusher, uh, he's probably going to need to shift inside and probably play defensive tackle on a in a uh, 4-3 scheme. Maybe you can play in 3-4, yeah. but maybe he's got value there. But I just – I worry about guys who test that well athletically, Zach, but then don't have the production to match it up. Like, why? Why don't you have the production? Going against players who aren't as good as they're going to face in the NFL, one of my – and, you know, one of my favorite writers to follow is Bill Connolly for SB Nation. He's yeah. written several really good pieces about how players don't normally exceed their college production in the NFL. Yeah. You know, maybe their stats look better, but if you look at, like, their marginal explosiveness and stuff like that, they don't typically do better than that at the next level. And that makes sense because, obviously, they're going against players who are better than they're used to going against the of college, course. right? So. It's interesting that guys like that who didn't maybe produce, and I think Metcalf could be an outlier because he was really on pace to have a really good season last year before he had the neck injury that knocked him out. Yeah, that's a bit of an asterisk there. Right, maybe it's not fair to pick on him, but if you look at some of his other athletic testings, there's real reason to be concerned. And then with Gary, he didn't, you know, he had a couple injury issues, but his production really just never matched his athletic prowess. See, for me, like, looking at production not matching, you know, the hype and everything, 
Um, the one that sticks out for me, and this is often just teams really reaching for quarterbacks, but given some of the other quarterbacks that are out there, Daniel Jones. Thank you. Yeah, Daniel Jones at Duke. Like, you look at it, and, you know, I, I, I just pulled up his stats out of interest right now, and he, you know... In his last season, he threw 22 touchdowns. He had nine interceptions, and that was, you know, an improvement on what he did his other two years, but he's never thrown, you know, he he threw for fewer yards year over year, you know, from sophomore to junior to senior, for redshirt freshman to redshirt sophomore to redshirt junior year. Um, You know, he his completion rate never was better than it was as a sophomore. You never, like, the development part wasn't there for me. Like, yes, you can see some of a slump in year two, but in his final season, he's getting a lot of hype for somebody who never matched the sort of numbers he put up as, you know, like that freshman dumb luck moment sometimes. He's getting the David Cutcliffe boost because everybody looks at David Cutcliffe as, you know, the kind of quarterback whisperer. And for good reason, you know, he groomed a couple of Manning brothers. Of course. And, and that's getting the boost. But again, when I you mentioned Bill Connolly, he wrote a really good piece that I encourage everyone to read about, you know, quarterbacks in this draft and their college production kind of matching up to what they might be in the NFL. And Daniel Jones is one of the guys he was really advocating to stay away from because yeah. his, if you really even deep dive into more of the analytical aspect of Jones's prospects, none of it's good. Like, no. None of it is good. And you're talking about a guy who I projected in the second round specifically because I didn't mock trades because mm. if you're doing a seven-round mock and you mock trades, you're a masochist. There's no way that gets, do that. That, that gets messy. Me. <laughs> Yeah, that would have taken me like six days to do, and I just I ain't doing all that. Like, yeah, I, I get it <laughs> for something that's gonna be wrong anyway. You know, so when you're when you're looking at it, though, like the Giants are apparently reportedly infatuated with Daniel Jones to the point that they're really considering taking him with either the sixth or the seventeenth pick that they have over a guy like Dwayne Haskins at Ohio State who threw fifty touchdowns last year in his only year as a starter was just magnificent. You're talking about a guy like Daniel. Daniel Jones to me, and maybe I'll be old takes exposed based on this, but Daniel Jones is a type of player to me who gets an entire front office fired for yeah. drafting him in the first round. He's a guy that he's the other end. The, uh, what'd you call it, Zach? Which all-stars are we doing? The Todd Marinovich all-stars. The he's Todd exactly it right there. Or the Christian Ponder. The, yeah, that's the one you recent, said. Yeah, that's totally recency. it. Yeah. Uh, the guys who college football fans are really advocating for you not to take. And, you know, there's a difference between college football and the NFL, obviously. And sometimes we get it wrong. But more times than not, like the guys who college football fans are really advocating for you to stay away from are typically correct. Right. Yeah. So this is a guy I, I'm in total agreement with you. Yeah, I would not draft Daniel Jones in the first round. Maybe he's worth a day two flyer, but I mean, it certainly seems like someone's going to reach for him. You're going to have a team who, like the Giants, who take him at 17, or you're going to have a team later in the first round who trades back into the first round or something like that, or trades up to draft him and gives up capital to draft a guy in Daniel Jones who, 
you know, he's got the measurables. He's six foot five, but yeah. he doesn't have the arm. He doesn't even have the arm strength to match that. Like I remember watching him in Mobile at the Senior Bowl, and it was just he didn't stand out to me as a legitimate prospect. Yeah. See, well, and the funny thing is, is not just like yes, he's got the size. He's he can do this and that, um, or at least look like this and that for the scouts, but. You know, compared to somebody like an Easton Stick, who was at an FCS school, but just, you know, and his numbers aren't, like, off the charts, but they're certainly better than Daniel Jones. He threw as many interceptions in four years as Jones did in three, and he threw, you know, he averaged, it looks like, five, six more touchdowns through the air each year. And, you know, like, you have to think he gets one or two more games from playing in the FCS playoffs. So, yeah, it, 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 it does somewhat balance out, but at the same time, wins. He's somebody who was able to pull out wins. And not every North Dakota State game was, a you know, just an instant crush. They The FCS does have some of that parity and does have some tough games, and, you know, like you just look at their their rivalry game with their their neighbor in South Dakota, the South Dakota, you know, against the Jackrabbits. And those games are always really tough. You know, the past couple of years, it's been back and forth there. And he's always looked decent in those games. And just how you play in situations where the stakes are higher, whatever the relative stakes are, really say something to me. And that's, I think, where the Russell Wilson comes into play. And so somebody like that even seems low. And obviously a, a, an FCS player is usually not going to get a day two run even, much less getting that first round drafting. It really takes a... a, a and Carson wins. Exactly. It takes a real eye popper there to, to make that even possible. And you know yeah, who's got the, the the track record of winning plus the you know being six five exactly and, an and so yeah and I think if Easton yeah. Stick was three inches taller we wouldn't even be talking about Daniel Jones because he would be that guy who's getting that sort of run but he's actually got the the measurables on tape that a Jones doesn't right I agree I had um circling back to the Russell Wilson aspect so we at least touch on the defensive side of the yes, ball as well, so it doesn't look like we're just focused on offense I had three players on defense all on the defensive line actually interestingly enough uh Jalen Ferguson out of Louisiana Tech who is the NCAA sack champion no yeah. one no one at least since they've been tracking the stats since 2000 sacked more quarterbacks than Jalen Ferguson at Louisiana Tech mm-hmm. um and say what you will about competition, there's no other player that's ever sacked more people than he did at the level he played at. So yeah. there's still value in that, I would say. You, um, you've shown you've at least got the muscle memory of doing it. <laughs> right. It Like, even going against guys who might not have your athletic ability, like, you're still able to outmaneuver them to get to a quarterback. Like, he sat, like again, he sacked more people than anyone ever has, at least since the year 2000. Like, if you're talking about um actually looking into it he's not number one if you really counted back you yeah, know when guys course. like Derek Thomas yeah. played college football but 
you know, since at least that's been a trackable stat, he's number one, which but, is still very and where's impressive. And where's he projected? You know, that's one that I, I totally agree with you. I just hadn't seen where he might be projected. So Day two, more second, third round range. I, I think he could potentially sneak into the first round of someone. He definitely the has the talent for it. <laughs> Yeah, edge rusher is at such a premium, too, in the NFL. Like, if you're not drafting a quarterback, you need to draft someone who can go get the quarterback, especially in an increasingly pass-happy NFL that we've experienced in the last few years. So he's that kind of guy. Uh, Jordan Brailford from Oklahoma State, I thought, had a really good season last year, especially for the Cowboys. I think he could be a player who could really make an impact as probably even a a late day three pick, like you're talking about a guy who's probably going to come off the board in the sixth or seventh round, mm-hmm. who I think could really do well. And then from the interior of the defensive line, Daylon Mack from Texas oh, A&M yeah. is an absolute monster. Like he was a five-star recruit. He's got a ton of talent. And I mean, every week, if you watch the Aggies play, he was wrecking shop. Like even if he wasn't necessarily making a ton of plays, he was helping others make plays by the fact that he was breaking through into the backfield, forcing scrambles, forcing running backs to cut to the other side of the field. So he's a guy who's probably late day two, early day three kind of draft pick who I think can make an immediate impact in the NFL. Nice. Another one that I think could be a really good flyer, and again, this is probably just the alumnus in me talking, but Ugo Amadi is a safety, I think. Some team's going to pick him up in the seventh round, and I, you know, just given what we've seen from Oregon defensive backs in the past, um, you know, for as terrible as their defenses can be sometimes, it's amazing how many good defensive backs they seem to recruit. And, and that turn into decent, you know, NFL players over the years. So he's, I think you could be more pleasantly surprised by Ugo Amadi. I think he might yeah. go a little earlier than you're thinking, because I, I, I'm pretty high on him as well. I think he's a really quality football player. And if he goes lower than, like, the fourth round or something like that, I think that would be a massive mistake by the NFL. I think he's a guy who could really make – a, con- a contribution right away. Yeah, I just hadn't heard much buzz about him, and he's one well, that, def- not. Yeah, you're right. yeah, not that definitely stuck out for me. And I was like, huh, you know, like he's why not? I mean, because again, another premium there. If you're not going to to kill the quarterback before he gets rid of the ball, it's making sure you steal it from him before he gets in his receiver's hands. So, right, awesome. Anyone yeah. else stick out for you? Those were the guys who immediately came to mind. I mean, there's several others who I'm sure of I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be watching the draft and be like, why is no one taking this guy? Exactly. You know, or why, why would this guy go this high? Like, and if you're talking about more of the Deshaun Watson kind of guys, I've gotten really sick and tired of listening to the endless debate about Jonah Williams having really short arms. Get out of my face with that. Like, it's funny. Jonah Williams has short arms. But Andre Dillard from Washington State has been praised by his prototypical size and strength and stuff. And his arms are shorter Mm -hmm. than Jonah's, measured shorter than Jonah's. And yet Jonah's concern is that he doesn't have arms long enough to play tackle, but Dillard is uh, without a doubt tackle. And, you know, I like both of those players. I don't want to take anything away from Dillard. I think 
measurables like that can really be overblown sometimes. Oh, of course. No, I think it's really good to point out just how ridiculous that teams and, and pundits especially, like especially people on the NFL end who are looking at it from that end of things, they can get really bogged down in the tail of the tape. Right. They look at the combine stats. And, I mean, the combine's great. It can really uncover some gems, like, that really – you know, maybe didn't have the the stage to show what they could do. Like a, a kid like, we talk about FCS players, like a Nasir Adderley from Delaware mm-hmm. who didn't have the big stage, but is arguably one of the top two or three safeties in the entire draft this yeah. year. It's probably going to go, you know, late first round, early second round range. So there's still value in the pre-draft process, but there's also guys who, you know, us as college football fans, we see – and we just can't believe that they're either either on the Russell Wilson spectrum or the Todd Marinovich spectrum of yeah, draft prospects. Totally. Awesome. Well, that was a fun, fun way to wrap this up, I think, especially um, because so much of that comes at it from the, the very NFL perspective. So, so thanks especially for your work putting together the seven round mock for the site because I know that's that is an effort um, it, it it was it was fun but it definitely took the the better part of a weekend to to get actually finished up yeah definitely kudos on that um, so yeah I think with that if you didn't have any other players that were sticking out um, we're coming up on time here everybody so thanks again for tuning in. Always a pleasure, um, and it was great to hear, especially from John, since he definitely, I, I'll admit it, took the lead there on the NFL. He definitely has followed a lot more of that than I have this spring. So hopefully uh, you all enjoyed out there. Appreciate it, Zach. Always always a pleasure to get to, to pick your brain and talk, uh, talk college football with you. Awesome. Well, you, you, you take it easy out there. Um, and always, as always, feel free to engage with us on Twitter. Um, links are here on the Stitcher site and on Saturday Blitz. So we'll hear you next Wednesday, everybody.